It's FAQ NYC Offcycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, joined by my old friend and Village Voice colleague, Stephen Thrasher, who's now a professor at Northwestern, the author of the really powerful book, The Viral Underclass, and the co-curator of the fascinating Viruses on Film series of 17 movies, plus three shorts, about just that, from Contagion Procedurals, the documentaries about HIV-AIDS activists in New York, to zombie flicks that's screening at BAM right now and through this Thursday evening. So, welcome, Stephen, and uh, let's jump right in. There's something fascinating about watching and probably making movies about something as ubiquitous and invisible as viruses. So can you talk a bit for our listeners about what led you here and what you hope uh, filmgoers come away from these screenings with? When I was writing my my book, uh, The Viral Underclass, I used films as a guide for a number of things I was writing. I have an entire chapter about the film Parasite and thinking about how we think about viruses uh, metaphorically and with, with capitalism and also why we talk about viral media or or think about viral ideas and politics. Um, and so I was really touched. I had, I had worked on a couple of projects with BAM before the pandemic. I think my first business meeting that was canceled in the pandemic was a meeting I was supposed to have uh, with BAM about potentially programming a festival of my own in late March of 2020. Um, so when I reconnected with them, I was really happy that they were interested in the idea because films are w- one of the ways that we've really processed this. Uh, and certainly the the first film that we showed, Contagion, on opening night was the movie that people were turning to in March and April of 2020. And so now that it's a little safer to be together again, people have been masked in the theater. Theaters are well ventilated. Um, I thought it would be a really great idea to experience some of these movies collectively in audiences. Uh, and it has been. I, I, for some people, I think it's perhaps a little too soon and and might be too much. But there are a lot of people who want to come out to these movies and see them together with an audience and be, have the opportunity to, to talk about and experience together some of the really difficult things we've gone through. Obviously, death and sickness are big parts of that, but viruses are these organisms that connect us in a lot of ways, particularly politically. And so it's been really powerful um, to show movies about how how viruses are starting points for different political movements, for ways of connecting, and particularly here in New York with the film United Anger that we showed over the weekend, um, the, the very, very rich history that, that viruses have created in New York City politics that not only shaped uh, you know the politics here of New York City but that had a profound effect on the ways that drugs were tested and the FDA regulated medicine in, in such a way that the, a process that used to take 10 years um could be done less than 1 year with the covid vaccines and allowed billions of people to get vaccinated and millions of lives to be saved just speaking of the united in anger for a moment uh was thinking while looking at these films and realizing that we haven't had a film about the events we've all been processing over the last couple of years to this point. Uh, it's been sort of in the backdrop of a couple of things, but, but, but there's not a really a work of art about it at this point. Um, 
United in Anger is this incredible documentary footage of and from activists in New York in the 80s. How long did it take in that cycle? And what do you anticipate in this one, you know, to to start having work out? Internationally, I think there's some. I think there's there's one documentary there that, that's from China that, that's I'd very much like to see uh, to get there across the globe and in America as we've had this remarkable event that, that again you can't see. You only see in some ways the the, the impact of and to uh, to end up with movies that are really about that um, as opposed to sort of the uh, the procedural was a pandemic that, that became. A common thing while we were all physically separated well there are um yeah we're showing two movies that have been made during covid 76 days which is an absolutely heartbreaking documentary that was shot in wuhan in the first 76 days of their lockdown I have no idea how the directors got that footage it's extremely intimate inside the hospitals um but it's really powerful and then we also showed a um showing uh a wonderful uh, feature film called follow the protocols which is a uh, kind of queer romantic comedy that was shot for $5,000. You wouldn't know it from looking at it because it, it looks absolutely gorgeous, but it was shot for $5,000 uh, in the pandemic in quarantine with just four characters. Um, that's really beautiful. And as somebody who lived alone for much of the pandemic, it captures a great deal of the feeling of, of, of being separated in that way. Um, but you're right. There's been very, very little here in the United States. And it feels particularly ironic because Hollywood is the only industry now um, really taking extreme COVID protocols, and they don't do it for altruistic reasons. They do it because once the cameras start rolling, they cannot stop. Uh, they cannot afford to stop shooting for any reason. So they're being very, very, very strict even to this day. Um, so you're right. It's it's kind of odd that we're not seeing it in, you know, in Hollywood movies and TV shows much at all. Uh, with United Anger, you know, it took a long time for uh, a few reasons. First of all, the AIDS pandemic just wiped out so many people so quickly, and there was an enormous amount of trauma. And something I've been thinking about, even though the raw numbers are much higher for COVID, it took almost 40 years for about 700,000 people to die of AIDS in the United States, and a million died in just two years with COVID. But the AIDS deaths were very concentrated in, in relatively small parts of the population um, that were just really, really decimated. So Sarah Shulman and Jim Hubbard um, had this wonderful idea for the ACT UP Oral History Project, and they spent the past 20, 30 years interviewing people at great length, an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, um, about their experiences in ACT UP. It's now all open source. Anyone can use that material, uh, the video from it, audio, or, or the written material from it. Um, and Jim Hubbard, who, who co-made that, is a filmmaker. And so his film came out in 2012, same year as another, as the other big one uh, called How to Survive a Plague. And I think both of those were partially because they were drawing on the ACT UP Oral History Project. They were very much kind of coming from a historical perspective. And so historians take a few decades before they even approach subjects. Um, but they're really, really, they're, they're both very powerful films. United Anger is, is fantastic. 
Um, and I would say that, you know, they were putting stuff out all the time while the, the crisis was going on. They were creating kind of community television models. Uh, we had an interesting conversation in the Q&A from a teenager asking, you know, what would the role of social media have been if it had been around with ACT UP? Um, but they were really about s- sort of seizing the means of media production. They stormed the CBS Evening News w- with a former employee <laughs> to, to, to shout slogans on the air and were doing things like that. So they had some media stuff out but it took a while to get these films. Um, And with COVID, I think part of it is that people are also so traumatized and I'm sure we're going to see stuff looking backwards at some time. Um, But I found in watching all these movies, Hollywood is good at looking at the past and looking at things that they think have already been solved um, for they're very, they have a very, very difficult time looking at the present and a little bit of is the lag of production, but I have covered the black lives matter movement um, since we were working together at The Voice. And stuff around that, often very facilely, is often tacked onto films. You know, you'll see a, a movie like Widows that has nothing to do with police violence, and they'll they'll add in a scene about a police killing. And that that's happened quite a bit. And nothing sort of similarly is happening with that with COVID, even at the level of just seeing people with masks. You know, you could see on a sitcom, for example, uh, references to the pandemic, and that's not really, really happening. So um, I think it's going to take some years before we see with COVID what we're now now kind of just starting to see with cinema and AIDS. It did strike me that that a lot of renewed apocalyptic fears after 9-11 got displaced bizarrely into uh, superhero movies over an extended period of time and and, and scenes of destruction that way that, that, that never directly sort of connected the one thing to the other, but, but it sort of became a backdrop for uh, displaced popular entertainment and, and, and sort of exercising some of those uh, some of those fears. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know if you remember. Um, I saw a trailer. I don't I don't know if it exists online, but I distinctly remember seeing a trailer of one of the Spider-Mans. I don't Toby Maguire, I can't remember which one, in 2001, where he's like swinging between the, the World Trade Center. And then um, and then after 9-11, they took that out of the movie um and replaced it with something else. Um, so displacement is something that Hollywood often does. And even with a show like The Last of Us, which is based on a video game and it's about a pandemic, a fungus, not a virus. But um, I think that the processing in a different reality is something that they do better than actually dealing with the the crisis in the current reality, depicting that. One of the documentaries you mentioned, 76 Days, I was just reading about it. I'm now very interested in in seeing it it sounds difficult but very powerful to watch it has three directors one of them is anonymous uh which maybe helps explain this footage you know from the early days of the pandemic in wuhan if i have this right um and, and it also struck me that that that, that as i understand it nearly everyone in this is uh is masked so they're not only dealing with a sort of invisible assailant that uh that that's inside of people's uh uh bodies and the people who are treating them are worried about protecting themselves but 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 even people who are together in physical space and having some access to that like the same way we don't get war footage there's very limited footage from inside of hospitals and what's what's actually happening even as this all gets described in almost militarized 
language a lot of the time. Um, you mentioned that you were pretty isolated for much of the pandemic. Uh, forgive me, I'm trying to formulate this into a question, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the layers between what we can see with each other and uh, in the course of these sorts of uh, disasters and how different films, I'm also thinking of the Andromeda strain here, yeah. like find ways to express that. Yeah, yeah, we're showing that as well. Um, 76 Days is is quite profound. And, and some of the things that stood out with me when I first saw it is it's not, it is a horror movie, um, but it's not a thriller. And the tropes that you see in a lot of these pandemic procedurals, including the, the police and the military and guns and runs on the store, none of that you're seeing here. It's happening in the hospital. The Times actually had like a good sort of 10 minute uh, thing that the 10 minute video thing they did at Elmhurst Hospital early on. Yes. Um, but there are very, very few things you see like that. And what really jumped out at me was that there's you know, there's not sort of guns and there's not hierarchy. Like everyone's trying to figure out what to do on the fly. And particularly as they begin to, in 76 days, you see the patients have nothing or very flimsy masks and and the staff maybe having masks to then going to face shields to then being hazmat suits. Um, so the visual sense of hierarchy disappears as well. Like you don't actually know who's a doctor, the head of the, the, the ward, an orderly, a nurse, you know, everyone kind of looks the same. Um, and none of them are toting guns and they're just like trying to figure out this thing as, as the situation's getting worse around them. Um, and they can't have, you know, physical contact with their, their patients. You know, everyone's sort of very, very separated from one another. There's a heartbreaking scene at the end of that movie where you see everyone going, all the staff going through increasingly routinized tasks, including these, um, baggies, like Ziploc bags full of cell phones piling up. And that's what they're trying to return after people have died to the family. And you see one nurse just making these very rote calls saying, you know, is this so-and-so's uh, relative? Grandma grandma has died. Um, and she seems not to be very emotional. You, you also can't like physically see her because she's in, in the hazmat suit. But then she asks one person if she can return the cell phone to them personally. She's going to break uh, protocol and they meet outside. She's still in her suit. Um, but then she actually starts crying when she gives it back to her. And she says, you know, I'm so sorry. We couldn't save your grandmother. And th they're both like apologizing to each other and crying. And it's, it's it incredibly heartbreaking. And you get a sense of both what people had to go through as these millions of people died around the world. And they did have to kind of just go from one task to the next, but it gives a really clear toll of what it had. And I think that the, for my conversations with healthcare workers, um, they took their responsibility very seriously as often in those early days, the last human that people saw. Um, but we don't see that. You're right. It's like war footage. We're, we're not seeing that. We're not privy to it. Um, and so the film gives us a little bit of insight into that, which I appreciate. And the film followed the protocol, which I also really love. It's about a gay man who bra he breaks up with his boyfriend because after eight months, one of them wants to get together and break the protocol. And the other one says, no, we still can't leave our houses. And they break up. Um, but one of them starts to have, um, wants to have sex again and actually refers to in this really, really funny, interesting way, the um, guidelines put out by the New York City Department of Health. Um, and I don't know if you remember, Mar April, April, May, I was a consultant on it. And, you know, we put out these um, guidelines encouraging ways people could have safer sex, including to use very uh, physical barriers, what gay men call glory holes. Um, and he actually sets up this clear 
like painting cloth in his apartment. It was plastic across, and it's like, okay, you get on that side of it. I'm going to get on this side of it. Um, but it really shows in kind of a comic way how people are still trying to connect to one another. And I and I'm I am actually surprised there's not more cinema like this. You know that that people didn't make about these kinds of experiences, the the often funny and touching ways that we were trying to navigate life, um, and that are very very relatable. And I I you know we've lost a million people in the United States, and I think that uh, a lot of cinema viewers would be open to ways to think about and process these terrible things we've gone through. Some of it would be sad, but but there's never been a time in human history where everyone on earth has been affected by the same medical thing in some way, you know, in, in, at the roughly the same time. Um, and so there are lots of opportunities for stories to be told and to help people process what's happened in this time. The only, the, the, the movie reference that comes to mind for me with that absurdly, uh, and, and, you know, all these questions of protection and different sorts of safety and human contact, uh, during the pandemic, is actually from 1988. It's just a throwaway gag in uh, The Naked Gun. Yes. <laughs> I, I want you to know I practice safe sex, and it cuts to the two of them in full-body condoms. Yes, that was a that was a, a joke that public health people were making at the time, particularly when we were actually working on those protocols and, and um, trying to tell people, like, there are, you know, like, don't feel ashamed about sexting or you know th or things that that may or may not have already been parts of people's lives but they weren't talking about um and the naked gun joke came up often with public health people um about like what would it actually take to have safe sex now you know something that i, I i've talked about this before but i i feel it much differently now that i've watched all these films is there's this tremendous gap between the characteristics of the HIV virus and how it operated, even though it's kind of the, the strongest model for many of the things we did in COVID. Um, but with HIV, like people could have safe sex, you know, with condoms. Um, and with COVID, there was like no nothing you could really do to be that safe just while breathing the same air. Um, and so that just created like, uh, a, even though we wanted to learn from AIDS and destigmatize from things we learned in AIDS, the characteristics were different. There was not a justifiable reason for Giuliani to have closed the bathhouses because the bathhouses had been and and continued to be actually through monkeypox in the last year, um, places where you could actually get information out, get um, physical materials to people to uh, create safer sex. Um, but with COVID, like you, there was justification for closing everything because the issue was the air that we breathe. And so that just created a really different dynamic um, between these. And so in, in some ways we wish like you could do something as easy as wear a full body condom, um, but, but it wasn't that simple with COVID. So going back to uh, tropes, which, which you brought up briefly before, there are these sort of different genres of virus movies and dropping, if my math is right, 48 days, you've got 76 days as, as this powerful documentary. And the series is also showing 28 days, which is a, a zombie movie, I would say, in effect, that really I, I saw many years ago and stuck with me. And I, I was hoping you could talk a bit about these different tropes and particularly in, in, in fictional, I guess, narrative movie storytelling 
the props people lean on. Um, you, know, you write about patient zero uh, in your book. It comes up in at least a couple of these movies uh, to to tell these stories and, and gain audience recognition. And what's troubling about some of them? Well, yeah, 28 Days Later is a great movie. And I, and I I noticed while watching what I call these pandemic procedurals that have these like repeating tropes, and a lot of them have numbers in them. So there, there's 76 Days from China. There's a movie called 93 Days from Nigeria. That's it's not a documentary. It's a feature film about the Ebola outbreak uh, in, in West Africa in 2014-16. Um, and so often there are these counting clocks and these counting days. But I realized at some point that like this is there are so many beats that are in the different movies that are the same. India, South Korea, uh, you know, Nigeria, you know, these these countries change, but the plot beats are very, very similar. Um, and one of them is that there's always a person, like a patient zero, which is a, a trope that I um, uh, do not like, but it comes up often that there's this idea a person comes from somewhere else and they bring the sickness into the place that didn't have it before. Um, and it's often depicted in Hollywood movies, particularly other countries too, but particularly Hollywood movies as someone who's being sexually irresponsible. So in the, ori the original use of the term patient zero, it was um, incorrectly attributed to a French Canadian flight attendant in the book and eventually the movie of And the Band Played On. Uh, in Contagion, Gwyneth Paltrow is a woman who's having an affair on her husband. She's on a business trip in, in Asia. She stops for a layover, pun intended, in Chicago, drops the virus off there with her lover, then brings it back to Minneapolis. Um, it goes way, way back. Bette Davis and Jezebel dies of yellow fever um, while also being a, you know, quote unquote, loose woman. Um, so that's something that comes up a lot. And I also noticed watching these movies that they share not only beats with disaster movies and Soderbergh, you know, some people are very upfront about it. Soderbergh who directed contagion talks about, this is a disaster movie. The disaster is the pandemic. Um, and you know, that's not an inappropriate kind of movie to make, but there are many ways to get at it. Um, but I noticed that they're not just disaster movies. They're very explicitly close to zombie movies. Um, and a South Korean movie we, we couldn't show because we couldn't, find the distributor had been sold through too many times is called the flu. And it's so, and it's about a fictionalized version of H5N1. And it's a fantastic, basically functions as a zombie movie. 28 days later does start with a virus origin story. They, the, the virus is called rage uh, and they're testing on these monkeys. And eventually one of them uh, gets out of the cage and, you know, attacks a person with this rage virus. Um, so the ways that, the, that we think about zombies and the way we think about, viruses through these films are are quite similar and that's three different examples of jumping from animals right because you have h1n1 and and, and bird flu stuff yes. you have uh the testing on monkeys there that plays out in a different sense with, with using animals for testing and monkeys and andromeda strain and of course that's the opening of 12 monkeys Yes, yes. Monkeys well. are, there's a, a line in Contagion that Jude Law, who's a, does not make our profession look good. Um, he's a blogger named Alan Quemwitty. And he says at one point, it's a bad day to be a rhesus monkey. And I, and I hadn't thought of that, uh, uh, you know, being on the first night of our series, but it's a very good harbinger that this is not going to be a good series for monkeys. <laughs> they, they, they keep coming up. Uh, time and again. And I really, it's not till actually watching all these movies together, you know, in the same week as I'm about almost halfway through now, 
that so many of them are about humans' relationship with nature in some way. Um, contagion is not only about animals, but it's about deforestation and the relationship humans have with each other and with um, what some animal activists call human animals or non-human animals. The relationship human animals have with non-human animals and also with plants and the wider ecology is a huge part of these movies. And increasingly, from you know, from a public health epidemiology standpoint, the issues are of climate change and and as the planet warms and more living beings are inhabiting smaller parts of the globe together the likelihood of spillover between species is is increasing yes. and something that we have to think about and manage that always concerns me the the the, the have to like the editorialists ought and should it is, it is it is imminent and it is there are people thinking about it it's not clear yet how much it's actually going to be uh managed and of course you know there, there's always this this sense in which people are dramatizing the uh, possible events that seem too much or too unlikely right up until they happen, as I think a lot of people just experienced collectively and uh, and in separation uh, yet again, uh, you know, over the course of this pandemic. A quick side note I have to ask about, uh, do you know the Amy Mann song, Patient Zero? I don't. So, but I'm writing it down right now, and that will go into my um, syllabus for my virus class in the fall. It's I'm, I'm I'm shocked at like how much I try to keep on top of these things, and I always learn uh, new things. I just discovered the Bjork song "Virus" uh, about a month ago, which is um, which is also quite, uh, but I uh, quite informative. But I will check out the Amy Mann song. Thank you. That, that that was where I was going. Is what is on your viral playlist? Uh, musically, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's this, uh, the Bjork song, um, there, I use a, like punk songs from the eighties and nineties, um, sex pistols and, uh, groups like that. Um, there's a, a beautiful song from Michael R. Jackson's musical strange loop, um, called AIDS is God's punishment. Um, you know, there, there's music that, that comes out in the eighties and nineties, but there's more stuff that, that comes out later. Rent of course is, uh, the, the musical, which there are lots of issues around, but it's, it's the entry point for a lot of people for knowing about AIDS, um, through this Broadway musical that came out in the nineties and has endless lyrics about AZT. And it comes out right before, uh, right before medications become available. So that's an, an entry point that I talk to my, that I play in my classrooms and, and talk to my students about often. So <clears throat> something that, that came to mind uh, with this series um, and also with, with the othering that comes with these uh, the viruses and the uh, bad people who get them is, you know, Trump has talked about the China virus and uh, Kung flu and so forth. And this is about a century after the Spanish flu, so-called. Uh, and the name really comes from the fact that, that Spain is neutral. In World War One, at that point, it doesn't have the same level of military censorship. So it's this thing that, that very likely starts in the U.S. and spreads around the world. Uh, Spain ends up taking the uh, name and the blame with, with that sort of necessary othering. Um, but a very interesting New York and movie tie-in is that the uh, health commissioner here at the time is this homeopath, uh, S. Royal Copeland. Hmm. Um, 
who becomes a national figure in his response and then becomes a senator and fights to get air conditioning in the Senate and says the lack of ventilation is killing everyone. But during the uh, wave of disease here a century earlier, as, as Frank Barry goes over in his great book about this, he insists on keeping the movie theaters in particular open. He says he doesn't want the holes in the wall and the unventilated places, but that there have to be places for New Yorkers to breathe, to get information. And of course, this is before the internet and isolation is that much more difficult. He also, though, keeps the schools open and L.A. shifts to correspondence classes. But just the, the thought of this parallel and, and sort of at a hundred year range, having uh, New Yorkers in the midst of difficult circumstances and concerned as for their own safety, finding ways to uh, to come together and watch movies. I thought I thought it was uh, a nice thing among among a lot of very difficult ones. Well, thank you. And as you said uh, in your opening, New York, the only place that matters, um, New York has this outsized role in uh, public health in, in many ways, um, you know, across the centuries, going back to Mary Mallon, who's also, um, excuse me, uh, a typhoid, uh, called Typhoid Mary. Many things about quarantine have developed here, uh, of course, through the AIDS crisis, ventilation, you know, the reason why I don't know if you've talked about this on your show before or not. Uh, New Yorkers are always complaining about the heat of their apartment with radiators is because they were developed to, you know, after, um, for use after the 1918 flu to make it so warm that you could be warm enough and have your windows open. And so there's in the winter, in yeah. the winter. Um, yes. Um, and it, the, the guidelines that the health department did around COVID. There were times where the, the New York City health and hospital system was actually doing more COVID tests a day than the NHS in England. Um, they were just doing a massive amount of testing. They've they've really done been at the forefront of getting um uh, Paxlovid uh, into communities and actually going out with vans to test and getting the medication to people, which has been such a problem all around the country. But the model here has has been the best for actually connecting with people. And with monkeypox, they then went back to the well and drew on lots of things that had worked um, successfully in the AIDS in the early years of the AIDS epidemic to help uh, create a success story. And it was the, the person running it, um, Dr. Dimitri, comes from New York City. He he had been running HIV at the CDC. They moved him to do the, the monkeypox stuff. And, and that's been a, a real success story of essentially eradicating that virus here in the United States. So New York does have an important role medically. It, it ties into it also being the finance and media capital of the country. Um, but there's a lot that New York has to be proud of from its public health history that has had benefits all over the world. HHS has been iconic, legendary even, in a lot of circles, and really fairly so <clears throat> for being at the forefront over decades, really a century, and, and just having these incredible professionals there and figuring things out in really difficult circumstances. New York has all these wonderful old school buildings that mostly went up in this era because you have lots of kids in tenements and slums who needed ventilation. And that's why Copeland insisted on keeping the schools open. He's like, where are they breathing better air? Hmm. And it was honestly very sad to me in the course of these last few years and the federal aid that came in did not see any such investment of that sort in yeah. in, in ensuring the, the the safety and the health and improving that 
of vulnerable New Yorkers now in a in, in a longer term way. And, and crises are, are, are complicated and difficult, but uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful that New York will stay on the uh, forefront of that and 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 caring about the the more vulnerable and and also the uh, the, the poorest among that among us and making sure that they're able to weed healthy lives. It's uh, it's deeply honorable work. Yeah, I, I'm 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 hoping it doesn't take too long in Chicago, where I now live. Cholera was the reason why the the center part of the city eventually got raised, rebuilt. They changed the literally changed the direction of the river um, to deal with cholera. And I think you know eventually that's going to happen with COVID. But the more I've done research on it, I realized, oh, that took 40 years. It took 40 years and three major outbreaks before this happened. I hope that doesn't isn't the case. Um, with COVID. And I, from a political standpoint, I, I often wonder why don't the right kinds of lobbyists get into the fight or win? Like, I don't understand why Jeff Bezos or Mike Bloomberg or Bill Gates or why these people doesn't buy ventilation companies and then sort of s- scare the public and lobby you know, the governments into having to put these systems into all kinds of public places. Um, because it's not like this is not part of the economy. There's, there's, construction work to be done and um, to make buildings safer. Um, just this, we need clean water, we need clean air. Um, so I, I do think it's going to happen. My biggest worry is how many people have to get sick and die before it does. Stephen, we have to end on a slightly more upbeat note, and we got to bring this back sure. <laughs> to the uh, to the series. Um, you know what? Actually, I apologize. People investing in that the right way and stepping up would be an upbeat note. Um, but but given how human nature and problems tend to uh tend to repeat, and as as people are coming and uh can engage with you, by the way, uh, and others, I believe, at these screenings, uh do you have a sort of just a closing thought on having these in-person and human interactions and as people are processing, you know, these documentary and artistic representations of different viruses and thinking about their own experiences, something that stood out or surprised you in the course of that? Um, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been beautiful to um, hear about people's experience. Last night we showed uh, at, at, after United Anger, somebody who was in the film, um, in the audience stood up and, uh, invited people to an action. <laughs> He's been doing activism now for 37 years. Um, it's protesting a, a book coming out from Simon and Schuster. That's an AIDS denialist book and invited people to come to an action. And it, it was just so good, but particularly having seen so many, so much death in the film, um, and to see somebody who is not only still alive, but has had found his, best friends and life's mission through this work and is still doing it. Um, and so that was really nice. And I, I hope that the last night of our, of our series, which is going to be Thursday, the 23rd, we're showing a, a very experimental movie called blue that was made by the director Jarman who made this film as he was losing his sight to AIDS and he only could see the color blue um, as he, as in his, his final months of his life and the entire movie's blue. Um, and so I'm actually bringing two people that I wrote my last cover story for The Voice about <laughs> 12 years ago. 
Um, they're two blind gay activists, and they're coming to do the talk back with us afterwards to not only talk about the experience of one of them lost their sight to the same virus as Jarman. It's called CMV. It's related with AIDS. And the other one has had uh, has been partially sighted his whole life. Um, but they're going to talk about the experience of watching this movie with a sighted audience. And I think it's going to be really insightful for a sighted audience to hear from these uh, people who don't have sight, but also have found great community uh, in being blind and also found great community in, in getting very sick from HIV and almost dying of AIDS, but then have built these really beautiful lives together. That, that's where they met. That's where their love flourished from. Um, and they've had these real lives of meanings out of that connection. And so I'm hoping the audience, as we deal with this moment of COVID, can uh, learn from uh, Howard and Kevin about um, the beauty and the love and the joy and the laughter in the lives they've built together coming out of the early years of the AIDS crisis. So I, even though it's going to be a, a heavy subject matter, I'm very hopeful that um, cinema gives us this opportunity to connect to one another in these ways. And crises, pandemics give us the opportunity to connect as well. And um, I'm really excited for the audience to just hear about the the really lovely, wonderful life that these two men have shared since they, they first connected 25, 30 years ago in similar circumstances to, to those that we're facing now. Stephen, thank you again for uh, taking the uh, time. And um, I hope I and uh, maybe some of our listeners will see you very soon at Ben. Thanks. Hope to see you at the movies. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our executive producer is Harry Siegel, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to Dr. Stephen Thrasher for joining us as the series he co-curated, Viruses on Film, is playing at BAM through Thursday. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.